Maurice Blackburn Lawyers, Australia's leading social justice law firm, have been fighting for your rights for nearly 100 years because they believe that fairness is a universal right, not just reserved for the chosen few. They know if one person's denied the right to be safe, to be free, to be heard or to be equal, everyone else's rights are at risk too, and that includes you. So whether it's returning stolen land, protecting new mums at work or demanding equality, Morris Blackburn Lawyers helps shine a light on everyday injustices, because who knows when your rights might be affected. Little song about a man called Goff and a little boy wanted to be tarred with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the liberals, so he didn't know Welcome why. to Pot on the Hill. I'm Claire Burns, your new Assistant State Secretary. On today's episode, I speak to Sarah Connolly. Sarah is the State Member for Tarnit, recently elected in the Danslide of 2018. We're thrilled to have her join Pod on the Hill today to learn more about one of our newest MPs for Melbourne's Mighty West. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Claire. It's fantastic to be here. It's great to have you down at the docks with us. So, Sarah, you've come to Parliament without the student politics pedigree, <laughs> without the rough and tumble of young Labor hanging over you. I'm interested to know the path that's brought you to the Labor Party. Well, Claire, I've I've come from a very different background to so many people in the party and so many members of parliament and colleagues sitting there with me in the chamber. Um, so I, I've started off on a really different journey. So I, I have a law degree mm. and I started off in the criminal justice system. Right. And was well and truly on my way to pursuing a, a career. I always dreamed about being a, a criminal law barrister, mm-hmm. something I felt very passionate about. And then uh, by chance, um, as does happen in life, um, uh, I, I met uh, Scott early on and headed off to Canberra. And that and Scott's your my husband. husband. Yeah. Yes. Okay, very good. And then things took a really different turn for me. So I was very focused on the law, criminal law, where I was going. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived in Canberra, I took up a graduate position at the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Right which was completely different from anything I'd done before. And then I, from there, I went on and I took up a position at the Australian Energy Regulator. And then 13 years later, Mm. you know, I found myself having worked across four different states, um, working on transmission and distribution uh, network planning for for electricity and gas. Right. Yeah. So I I found myself on that path Mm. and, uh, you know, when the opportunity arose... Uh, to run for parliament, I I said yes. Fantastic. I jumped at it. That's great. Jumped right in. So your experience with the energy sector then would be particularly relevant to your time now in parliament or even having an interest in politics at the moment given what a hot button issue climate change and renewables and the whole energy grid is. Yeah, so it's um, when I first started all those years ago at the Australian Energy Regulator, no one... No one really cared. No one was ever interested in in what I did in the energy sector, how their electricity or gas was um, distributed to the Mm. home. Prices weren't that big of an issue. Mm. Um, And now um, energy is one of the most talked about issues, not only in Parliament and, and down in Canberra, but it's talked about by real people 
inside their house at the kitchen table people are very concerned about the rising cost of living energy prices um, and where we're heading um, in the renewable energy I guess revolution that's right it's a very live issue for a lot of Australian families yeah and I think um, I've had lots of conversations over the last 12 months about the rising cost of electricity and gas bills and in my previous role, I worked for uh, Victoria's largest energy network service provider, Osnet Services. And part of my role there was going out and talking to people in the community about what were their energy issues? Um, why, why, were, why are people taking up um, at such a high rate um, things like uh, solar panels, batteries, uh, when do people expect to get electric vehicles? You know, this sort of real futuristic thinking and way of thinking. And what I what I took from that is that people's interest and passion for renewable energy, renewable technology really does transcend socioeconomic circumstances. So we've been out and I've been out and talked to some of, you know, some really uh, working class, families doing it quite tough and the likelihood of them ever being able to afford an electric vehicle ever being able to put solar panels on their roof um, it it won't happen in their lifetime and yet they're some of the most passionate people um, and interested people in renewable technology and I thought that was fantastic. Now Sarah earlier you mentioned Canberra and going to Canberra (laughs) Where did you go to Canberra from? Because you're not a native Victorian, are you? No, and I, I have this. I've lived in a lot of different states, mm. in a lot of different cities and communities, and my observation really of Victorians and particularly people that live in Melbourne is that um, even if they they're born here and they move away, they come back or they never leave. There's a magnetism to there it. There is, mm. and Melbourne and Victoria is a fantastic state. Melbourne is a fantastic city to live in. It's a very exciting city full of opportunity. And we moved here as a family, you know, to really harness that opportunity. Um, but before I, I jet set it off to Canberra. To the bright lights of the capital. Well, for, yeah, I would say for love. <laughs> the thriving metropolis of Canberra. Yes. Um, I, I, I was going to university in Brisbane. I went to the University of Queensland mm-hmm. and did a law degree. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in Kingscliff. Kingscliff is a town in northern New South Wales, um, a very small uh, beachside village. It was very quiet, sleepy beachside village back then, um, very close to Byron Bay. It was a very beautiful place to grow up. Very beautiful. The northern part of New South Wales is yeah, quite remarkable. Yeah, it is. Mm. Untouched by the skyscrapers of the Gold Coast, which <laughs> is always a fantastic thing. Um, and when I turned 18, I always knew I wanted to go to university. My parents desperately wanted me to go to university. I was the eldest child of three. And um, my parents never made it to university. In fact, my father didn't finish school. Um, and what did, what did your father do? Uh, he was, he still is in his 60s now. He's a milkman. Oh, right. Yeah. And yep. he still is a milkman. Yes, but never in the day of horse and cart. <laughs> so how how does a milkman work these days when supermarkets are selling dollar milk and you've got 
online shopping and all the it's rest? It's really tough. So dad delivers to supermarkets. Okay. Um, he also, he delivers a lot now to cafes. So back when I was a kid, we would be tortured by going out on school holidays, doing the, the milk run with dad. And there, and I remember the glass milk bottles, you know, and we had the carriers and they'd take six of them. Um, we used to get those on our doorstep as well. Yeah. yeah. And there was something kind of really lovely about the milkman was known by everyone, embraced by people. You know, every time there was an Easter or Christmas or birthdays, there'd be presents always left out for the milkman. Um, but nowadays, dad delivers to shops, um, cafes, um, service stations. And um, I guess over the years, what we've found, uh, well, what he's found is that um, cafes will hopefully always request milk to be delivered from their milkman. But there's a trend, um, an upward trend that they're, you know, calling on Coles and Woolworths to deliver the milk directly to cafes. Mm. And I, I think that's kind of sad yeah and what did your mum do so mum it's interesting with mum because she started off her career as a nurse and mum's a very practical caring um get on with it kind of person um, which is I think is quite admirable and they're great qualities I think to have in a nurse and with dad's job um doing the milk run he'd get up at three o'clock every morning so I guess you know shift work um, long hours and he quite often worked seven days a week when we were growing up it was very difficult for mum to have um, her children and really be the primary carer but go back to work go back to shift work so um, I grew up um, you know with mum doing family daycare so I'm mm. the daughter of a family daycarer <laughs> great um, so I grew up with a lot of children around me And then as we got older, mum uh, went into early childhood education, into a centre. And then she's again retrained, went and did a course and moved on to being a carer in aged care. Mm. So she currently works in a nursing home looking after elderly people and and people with dementia. So mum has a a wealth of knowledge of caring for people, um, but also a wealth of knowledge and I guess experiences of what it is like to work in aged care in a nursing home. And it can be an incredibly tough profession and often low paid. And yeah. and your uh, experience with unions yeah, must, right. must be quite compatible with your understanding there around what your mum does for work and why it's so important to make sure that our, particularly women in caring professions are properly remunerated. Yeah, that's right. So mum, you know, uh, working in aged care, I think there's a huge demand for carers, for workers, but it's very much an undervalued part of our society and our community. The work my mum does is is not acknowledged. Um, it is minimum wage. Um, you know, she's in her 60s and it, it's not easy for a person in their 60s to do a lot of physical work in, in showering mm. and dressing, Um elderly people um but I think uh I think mum would be exceptionally good at her job and I yeah I hope that well if if one day I end up in a nursing home that I have someone like my mother to look after me because she really does care about these people. Sarah on the campaign trail you had a lot of people especially women Uh, come to you and talk to you about their experience with IVF and with stillbirth and you were able to relate because of your own experience and in fact you've got tattoos 
to mark the things that you've gone through with having children. Tell us about that. So a lot of people say to me, I don't look like the sort of woman to have tattoos, which I always find a little bit funny. Yeah, what does a woman (laughs) with tattoos, what is a woman with tattoos supposed to look like? I think they expect a more sort of rough, um, a rough type, less of a kind of professional woman. You know, it's not like I'm covered in tattoos. Sure. Um, And I, I say people, the funny thing is, is that I had them done after Vivian died. And I'd never thought, I I didn't really like tattoos. I'd never thought about them before. But there was this feeling within me that I I wanted some kind of marking on me. So it was such a, you know, a a traumatic, horrendous time. And Vivian was your eldest daughter. She was my eldest daughter and she was 37 weeks Mm. and born sleeping. So we say stillborn. Um. We don't know what happened to her. Um, at the time, we had to sign. I, I remember getting counselling there in the hospital about having an autopsy done on her, and it's a really big deal, you know, to talk to parents about. Yes, your baby's died, but we need more research, and and we need to. We would like to do an autopsy. Let's see if we can find out what went wrong. And I remember signing off uh, to do that. And it was a difficult conversation, you know, the reality around a conversation like that is they want to talk about what happens during an autopsy, what your child would look like. Mm. And I remember before the funeral, we, uh, I, I wanted to see her again. And I remember the funeral director saying to me, oh, well, we're not sure what she'll look like. And, you know, I, and I, I said, well, I, I won't see her again. I, I can't deal with the thought of of what she would have looked like, you know, if if the funeral director had come back and said, you don't want to see her. So that conjures up all kinds of images and stereotypes and, and things like that. Um, and for us, six months later, after she'd been buried, we got a phone call from our obstetrician who was incredibly apologetic and in disbelief um, that the hospital had, for better words, had forgotten to do the autopsy, Mm. that the phone call that needed to be made to the person to conduct the autopsy was not made because it was left off a flowchart. So that, that was really difficult. That was really difficult to actually comprehend and understand but also try and move past Mm. so you know 10 years on she would be 10 this year on the 31st of March uh, next month but in hindsight sometimes I think fate has a way of you know leaving some things to the unknown Mm. so since then we've had two beautiful children Emily and Leo and all three of our children have been through IVF and I do talk about openly talk about you know our experience with IVF and I think there's a lot of couples out there desperate to become parents but sometimes the road to parenthood is really hard and more conversations need to be had around those obstacles and those things that happen to us on that journey to become parents 
Um, so what I found is that doing so many train station, mm. early morning train stations, I women would young girls would come up to me, women would come up to me, and they would say, "I I saw your comments on Facebook, and I just want to say, it really means a lot to me that you come out and you talk about it openly, and that it is a really difficult time." And I remember this one particular woman uh, months later coming up to me and and grabbing me at the train station and sort of shaking me saying Sarah Sarah I'm pregnant and you know I I felt and I would see her you know every two weeks at the same train station watching you know her sort of blossom into this beautiful pregnant woman but she had sort of said to me your story helped me to go on to push through you know and I'm, I'm sure she's now at home um, with her baby it's a it's a wonderful thing yeah it's a wonderful thing to think that sharing stories and and talking about things that are sometimes pretty difficult to talk about can actually help people going through tough times that's right and I think as a local member one of the fantastic things is that much as much as you saw this woman every couple of weeks at the train station as the local member now there are going to be so many more opportunities to interact with people like her and other people who have or will come to share their story with you and to make that connection in the community as people's representatives as a leader in the community and as somebody that people know have a lived experience of things that many families go through I think so. And, you know, the demographic of the Tarnian electorate and, and the outer west is young couples mm. having children. It's a huge growth area, isn't it's it, the west? It's a huge growth area. And, and I think the road to parenthood can be really difficult, but then actually being a parent can sometimes be kind of tough. And the announcements that I've, you know, personally respected and, you know, sort of um, been so happy to see released over the last couple of years have been those ones that don't often make the front page of the paper. Mm. Um, but I know deep down will help those parents, um, you know, that, that need some help. It, it might be funding more sleep schools, um, more outreach workers into, um, you know, isolated first-time mums who were struggling to raise their first child. Um, the cuddle cots um, in hospitals, was I thought an absolutely it was just an incredible announcement um, and something that you know is is not as sensationalized as building a new hospital but when people are at you know their worst time in their life that something like a cuddle cot will ultimately make a difference and it's those smaller things that can be the most impactful as yeah. you said and yeah. they're good labor policy yeah it's the thoughtful aspect there of really getting down to the minutiae of what people need to be supported and live a meaningful or or bearable life and labor does that yeah and I think it's also about listening listening to what people are, are saying listening to what people need beyond hospitals roads train stations they're very important things but it's listening to the other things and looking for ways in which to make changes to policy or legislation or community services that can actually get in and help people in their everyday lives you've spoken about women in your electorate and coming up and speaking to you and sharing with you what are your hopes for the women of the West that you've grown to know so well 
in your time as their candidate and their MP now? Oh, there's so many, there's so many hopes and dreams I have for the women in the Outer West. And I, I, I've had, you know, I've had hundreds, thousands of conversations uh, with women, but women from all different backgrounds. So I've been, you know, I've been in situations where I've, I've attended um, prayers at a mosque and I've, I've sat and I've listened and I've watched the prayers um, and then we'll have a meal time and, you know, the women might eat together and the men might eat together in another room. When I sit with the women and, uh, you know, we, we start talking, we talk a lot of, uh, about a lot of things, a lot of women's issues that are happening. And for one, one example of that is uh, on this particular occasion, there was a group of Muslim women and um, their children came up to me and wanted me to take off my headdress and asking me questions like, is your hair real? Mm. Are your nails real? Can we touch your hair? <laughs> and their mothers were mortified. And once I said, no, no, it's fine. Here you go and pulled out my hair and they could, they could touch it and realise it is real. <laughs> it was attached to, to your yeah, head. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the mother, I said to the mothers, you know, what do you do? Are, are you working? Are you working part-time? Are you staying at home looking after the kids? A lot of these women in the room were incredibly educated, university, university PhD level educated, um, and were in incredible professions um, back in the country they come from. And yet here in Australia, in Victoria, they couldn't get a job. Mm. And I said, why do you think that is? And they thought it was because of what they looked like and that, you know, their hair was covered or they wore different clothes. And it's not that they were unhappy or they were complaining because, you know, motherhood and looking after kids, uh, any parent knows is pretty much a full-time job. But I, I didn't realise and it wasn't until, you know, I sort of opened up and started having conversations with them that I thought, there's a whole group of women out here um, that really are an untapped resource wanting to go back to work but just can't get a job and it's not because of their qualifications. Mm. Um, you know, and that, that is something that will stick with me and stay with me. So seeing that intersection of race and gender yes, coming together to create real barriers for people. That's right. And I, you know, I, I hope, you know, I... I hope for them that, you know, they are able to find employment um, at some stage, you know, in the way in which um, companies and businesses and employers interview people um, is something I know that is looking, uh, being looked at, at, at changing and doing, you know, these sort of um, blind resume um Hiring uh, processes. That's right, and, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not looking at you know, where someone comes from and um, what they look like and their name, it's really based on qualification. And I think that you'd find that a lot of those women would have gained secure employment. Um, there's other women, you know, that I meet that are stay-at-home mums and they're at home full-time and they, they want to be at home full-time. But they're, you know, I try and encourage them and want to see them to go to playgroups or take their children to kinders. And in the Outer West, you know, there is a shortage of kinders. We need to build more. The three-year-old kinder is an absolutely fantastic announcement by the government, but the Outer West is struggling to keep up with the demand 
of children that are being born and moving into the area. I think we're at about 97 babies being born a week. You know, there's those kids are going to need schools. Mm. Um, they're going to need jobs. They're going to need pathways for opportunity. Um, I, I guess my ultimate goal as the local member for everyone out there, regardless of men or women or children or where people come from, is that people in the Outer West receive what I got and that's opportunity, that they have the same opportunities as everybody else in this state. Um, I refuse to believe that a postcode should determine who we are and where we're going. I I will not um, accept that. Geography is, is just that, it's geography. And the Outer West shouldn't be any more disadvantaged than anywhere else, purely based on where people live. And you're now in a fantastic position as a member of a very progressive, very considerate, very well thought through Labor government in this state to make all of those things even more of a reality. That's right. So um, one of the, you know, with the population growth, um, which hasn't happened overnight and it's not necessarily slowing down out there, we had four years of a Liberal government that pretty much didn't do anything in the Outer West. Mm. So by the time Labor came in in 2014, we were behind. And in four years, Labor has done incredible things in the Outer West. They really have. I was just down there this morning with the Minister for Transport, Melissa Horn, at, at Tarnit train station. Labor put the train station in. Um, it's almost impossible to believe what life would be like for the one million plus commuters per year mm. that use that train station if we hadn't put it in. Um, we'd made incredible inroads to the roads with the Western Roads package, the 1.8 billion. The majority of those roads are inside the Tarnit electorate. But we've been in catch up. And, you know, we've done a lot in four years, but by God, there's a lot to do in the next four. There always is, isn't there? There There's always more to do. Yep. It's exciting. Good. That's fantastic. Well, you've come in with a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And I guess being an MP is a pretty unique profession. Um, It's one that a lot of people aspire to or they dream about, but often don't make it to it's you know it can be a game of luck and opportunity but now that you're in it I'm curious what profession (laughs) other than your own would you like to to attempt if uh if this hadn't come to pass if you got tired of the things that you'd done previously perhaps even when your time as an MP ends down the road what would you attempt if the world was your oyster Oh, that's such a difficult. I mean, you could say anything. Dentist, um, movie star. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've been to so many grade twelve graduations mm. where they read out what every single person wants to be. Mm. None of them ever want to be a politician. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It's it's really one of those things that you don't, I think, ever start out your young adulthood going I'm going to be a member of parliament I mean I'm sure some people do but it's very rare it usually ends up being something that you awaken to a bit further down the path well it's I mean for me I never I, I certainly never started out wanting to be a politician um, 
I feel very passionately about standing up for people. Um, you know, I know, <laughs> I know Scott has on occasion called me a pit bull that just won't let go of a particular cause. <laughs> that's, that's, what which, they, that's what you need I'm in sure a local come member. In handy. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, but I think that if I could, you know, if I could sort of do anything, mm. um, I would probably go back to doing what, you know, early at early on at high school, I always wanted to be a language teacher in mm. another country. Mm. And I studied German and Japanese and senior at high school during the later um, um, grades, I studied Japanese and did Japanese for the HSC in New South Wales. And I went and I lived in Japan in grade, I think it was grade 11 for four months and went to school um, at a um, in a prefecture um, at the bottom of Mount Fuji. And that was an incredible experience. It was a homestay. And looking back now, I think it's a pretty big deal to send, um, you know, a 16, 17-year-old girl across, across the world. Yeah, I don't know if I would do it <laughs> um, when I think about it. But that was a life-changing experience oh, for me. I can imagine. And being able to communicate with people in another language is incredible. Um, and I, I'm certainly in a um, the member for an electorate that is incredibly multiculturally diverse. Um, people speak um, not one, not two, three or four languages. It's interesting. I've heard... Um I mean, language is really the way that we shape our world, isn't it? It's the way everything is framed from relationships to our understanding of things to our interactions with with the world around us. Uh, I've heard people describe who have multiple languages, polyglots. I'm not. I only have English, unfortunately. But I've heard it described as almost being like having different selves. You know, if you if you are a native Japanese speaker who learns English, you have your um, your Japanese self because yep. the yep. language yep. that you speak is such a strong part of that identity I mean I think you know apparently um it's much you may be able to attest to this is much easier to express anger in English than it is in Japanese there's which speaks That's to then right. the culture yeah. right and and the way that you use words to build things yeah I, I think that's right and I, I do think if I could choose, I, I would probably end up going and being a language teacher in another country. Mm. And, you know, I, I saw a statistic the other day that um, across Wyndham, I think it's only 45% of the population only speak English. Wow. So we're, we're in a minority. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, and on a Sunday, I, you know, I, I popped in the other day to Hoppers Crossing Gudwara, um, unannounced. Sometimes I, I feel more comfortable going to places alone without an entourage, mm. um, without people to introduce me and, and take me around. I just want to see what people are doing in those sorts of real-life environments at that moment. And I knew that um, kids' language classes were being ta- taught, Punjabi, there at the Gurdwara and, and popped in and saw these kids. And, you know, every single kid in that room, and there was about 20 spoke, Three or four languages. That's amazing. Gudwara is a local language school. Sikh, no, it's a Sikh temple. Sikh temple, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they were conducting these language That's right. classes. Yeah. Um, our wonderful Bangladesh, uh, Bangladeshi community um, teach Bangla. We have, um, you know, families from Gujarat teaching Gujarati. Mm. So when I go to events, you know, I I always like to begin by saying something in their language, and you know, it's always everyone sort of claps and says well done and I think 
I'm just saying hello. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, I think it would be wonderful um, if at some stage I look at studying, you know, a a language like Hindi um, that is widely spoken and can have a conversation or make a speech in their in the language of the people that I'm talking to because I know that it really it does mean something it is about a connection with people um, a deep connection and and languages and being out and the way in which you communicate um, helps deepen those ties I think have you retained much of your Japanese I can still read I can still read and write Mm. a lot Mm. Um, the speaking I haven't spoken uh regularly for a long time but there's still yeah I, I still I think I still can have you taken Scott and the kids over to Japan no no I haven't but I would oh, love to do that that'd be an amazing experience it, that's mm. on our bucket list to do yeah and um I yeah that time I spent in Japan I remember when I came back and I came back to Australia and you know and I, I flew you know all that way alone mm. um I'm not even sure if we were accompanied by a teacher I, I can't remember but when I came back we had a Japanese exchange student living with us which was not uncommon for our family because I was learning Japanese and we tended to have teachers or students live with us the whole time I was in high school and that really enabled me to speak and I remember coming back and I actually felt more Japanese um, with language and culture and and it, I found it difficult to switch back into the English because, you know, back in those days doing homestay, my homestay family didn't speak English. You were forced to use it. Absolutely. Did you dream and think in yes, Japanese? Yes. Wow. And that's when I think you truly know, know that you're immersed in a culture. Mm. And I have a lot of people come up to me, you know, in the Tani, um community and they say, oh, you know, you, you have so much fun coming to festivals and events and so open to learning new things and um, learning about our culture and our heritage and where we come from. Um, and I, they asked me why. Why are you so open mm. and embracing? And I think the answer to that stems right back to me going to Japan and throwing myself into, you know, a culture and a language and a, a people that was so different from my own. And the experience I had was absolutely incredible. Well, Sarah, you're incredibly accomplished. You've had a career in law and the energy sector. You speak multiple languages. Uh, and now you're in parliament. For our last question, tell me something that you haven't been so successful in, something that you failed at before. This is, this is isn't this always the... Uh interview question to try and trip someone up at the end of a job (laughs) interview (laughs) the favorite one that everyone goes finally we get to it what are your weaknesses and everyone always says oh I I just work too hard yes yes (laughs) (laughs) um um because when we say fail you know it's almost like doing a test um like a driver's license and you haven't passed but I and maybe failure is the wrong word right like I like to say uh there are two kinds of people in this world winners and learners failure is can have a almost a pejorative ring to it you know you've failed you're a failure but really it's such a critical part of the human experience to make mistakes to fall down to not get something right and to learn from it it is and how you pick yourself back up Mm. is 
is really a true tribute to your character. So, which is going to sound really funny when I say what I've failed at. (laughs) (laughs) And when I tell you how I uh, picked myself back up. (laughs) Um, So one thing that I, I consistently fail at and probably now refuse to do is sewing. Yeah. <laughs> I was always a crap and, sewer too. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, now that I've got children and if I find hems fall down or buttons fall off, um, I mean, hems can be fixed up. I have gone to workplaces, um, professional workplaces with my hem stapled. <laughs> that works. I remember and doing that, that to my school dress. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> But uh, sewing. Okay. Yeah, smart, <laughs> smart woman. Good job. I find uh, it's useful to take things to the ultra whenever there's a hole or a hem. And I, you know, it's it's creating jobs. It's putting money into the That's economy. That's right. I, I'm not useless at it. I'm just making sure that other people who are good at it get the opportunity to it's do it. with very little embarrassment that I turn up with a button and a jacket and ask if they can sew it back on. (laughs) Good on you. (laughs) Well, Sarah, I have many more questions for you. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but it's been so wonderful to have you on today. And it's almost time for our final section, our lightning round, as well as your chosen song. Now, Sarah, are you ready? The pressure's on. Lightning round. The liberal that most gets your goat. Josh Frydenberg, Mm. and that's because I feel, when I talk about energy, I feel so excited. It's, you know, it's an incredible um, industry and topic to talk about in our renewable energy future. Um, It is something that people in our community are incredibly interested and passionate about, and yet every time I hear him or when he held the portfolio, every time he would talk, there was so little passion in this man's voice for something that is a truly incredible industry. Guilty campaign food one you're ashamed to admit to? (laughs) (laughs) Or not, or proud. No, no, I I would say that um, one thing I got quite addicted to, and I'm not ashamed of it, I would say to listeners out there to go and try it because, and you want it heated up, the gulab, Jamun. Oh, gulab jamun. Oh, oh so good. The, the donuts with the syrup. Yes. Yeah, Indian, yes. Yeah, they're the best. Yes. Mm-hmm. And out in Taneet, every restaurant, every cafe has them and they do them just a little bit different. So I <laughs> I particularly like them with Indian ice cream okay. heated up. Oh, fantastic. There's a tip. No, I'm assuming you don't heat up the ice cream. I don't heat up the ice cream. You don't heat up the ice heat cream? Up. No, no, no. You want the ice cream. So it's nice yeah. and warm with the rose syrup and it's sweet. And then you've got, you know, the coffee ice cream and it's beautiful. Delicious. Uh, Western Bulldogs or Brisbane Lions? <laughs> <laughs> That's just mean. Um, Western Bulldogs because I wasn't born and bred in Queensland. Okay, yes. No, you're in Northern you go. New South Wales. And it Wales matters in Northern New South Wales if you're for Queensland or New South Wales. Yeah, the... the Maroons and the blues. Yeah. Uh, drink choice when the sausage sizzle has run out of Coke, Sprite or Fanta? I'll take champagne. Oh. Or uh, <laughs> that would be a very inner north of Melbourne sausage sizzle. Yes. Um, Sprite. Okay. Uh, Paul Kelly cliched Melbourne landmarks, St Kilda Beach or the MCG? Ah, uh, that's easy. MCG. Okay. And what's your favourite political fiction book, film, or TV series? <laughs> 
Look, I would love to say House of Cards, oh, but yeah. I watched the last season and I didn't really like it. Yeah, and it just I, went off the rails. I, lo- I just thought Claire was such an incredibly interesting, dynamic, complicated character mm. and that last season just ruined it for me. Robin Wright is my girl. I love her. Oh, She's fantastic. Amazing, amazing. So I, I do have one and um, <laughs> the Tudors... Oh. I can just watch that on repeat. <laughs> I don't know if that's Jonathan Rhys Myers, but I do like a historical multifactorial, and yeah. I reckon that's pretty political. And finally, your favourite Japanese dish? Oh, that's hard. The agadashi. Mm, agadashi tofu? Yes. Mm-hmm. Love it. Very good. Yep. Excellent. No one else in my family likes it except me. Well, hey, more for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, finally... What song have you chosen for us to send us out on today? Well, this is really hard because I had a very strict musical education by my father, who's mm. a total rock and roll um, country music fan. Mm. And I grew up not not really allowed to listen to commercial radio. So we had Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Johnny Cash. Oh, fantastic. Um, it was a real musical education. Mm. But I am going to go with Nick Cave, The Ship Song. And... I reckon I'm choosing that because I think it is one of the most beautiful um, love songs ever written. And I think Nick Cave is one of the greatest Australian artists that there still is. Sail your ships around me And burn your bridges down We make a little history, baby Every time you come around Come loose your dog on me and let your hair hang down you are a little mystery to me every time you call around we talk about it all night long
Your bridges.